your passport to hand to the guys when they ask you a few questions what they do. But I kid you not, as we're waiting in line with all these cars around us, right beside us is this big boom. Boom! It was a car that had exploded. And what had happened is there was water falling all down from the engine. Apparently, the water pump had blown right there in the line. And I kid you not, the next thing that happens is a guy with a turban on gets out of the car. <laughs> and talk about the ultimate diversion. It was wonderful because all these border police come running up to this car. And they start pushing on the car to get it out of the way because it's stalled. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, we drive right up to the Border Patrol guy and our driver hands all of our passports to him and we all sit there and wait in tense moments for him. He asks us a few questions. Where you been? What you done? All that stuff. And he says, welcome back home. Here are your passports. And we drove right through. No issues. Even though I had an expired passport, they let me back in my country. Thank you very much, America. And it goes to show that waiting on the Lord can be a challenge, but the Lord does come through even with a spectacular explosion next to us. But guys, that's along the lines of exactly what we're going to be talking about in 2 Peter 3 today. In 2 Peter 3, Peter has been telling us the great news of what is coming in the future for Christians. And a slide we're going to put up on the, on the overhead here kind of illustrates the great news that the Christians in the first century were living with, that you know, creation happened way back when, and that the fall happened after that. And in light of the world living in the ways of the fall, God finally sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save people through his life, death, resurrection, even ascension. And that one day, Jesus is going to come back in the second coming. He's going to return to our world. And they were living with that great joy that Jesus would come back to them. However, the difficult part of waiting on Jesus is sometimes the wait is very challenging and very tense, even for believers. We're not so sure at times that this second coming thing is for real, if we're really honest about our thoughts. So in 2 Peter, Peter anticipates the doubts <coughs> and questions we sometimes have about the second coming by answering a burning question that we all carry as Christians, why? Why should we believe that Jesus is actually going to return one day? I mean, Peter knew this question lived for Christians because those from outside of the church were actually asking this. Even some false teachers within the church were actually asking this. Yes, even Christians were having their struggles about whether Jesus would come, actually come back one day or not. And so what Peter does in our text in chapter 3 is give four arguments, four reasoned exhortations on why we should believe that Jesus is going to come back one day. Now, this begins with verses 1 through 7, which Richard a few weeks ago talked about in, in Peter's first argument. You might recall Peter addressed scoffers, these false teachers within the church who didn't believe in Christ's second coming. The scoffers were those who made fun of Christ's second coming. In fact, to paraphrase verse 4 of chapter 3, they would say things like, so Jesus said he's coming back. So where is he? 
about what you perceive as a delay and move it. After all, look at history itself, where Noah, for decades, told the people in his time and place all about the coming flood that was to come, a flood that would alter the whole earth. And people said the same thing. They scoffed at him. Yeah, right. Sure thing, Noah. And what happened is after they laughed at him, in the end, Noah and only his family survived the great flood that came. Only they were saved. What was the problem of the scoffers? Well, verses 1 through 6 tell us they deliberately overlooked the fact of history itself. Now that brings us to verse 8, where Peter turns his reasoned argument away from scoffers to sincere believers like many of us here today who had nagging doubts about the Christ's second coming. Remember, Peter here uh, was talking to Christians who were probably eager to accept the gospel of Christ's second coming, but after years of suffering the culture's hostility towards them, they were getting tired of waiting. They began to wonder, where is this Jesus? Where is the Lord? What's he waiting for? That's what they started to wonder. And even a few began to doubt when he really ever come back. Peter's answer comes in the second argument of verse 8, which he's, where he says the following. Speaking of Christians, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter here is saying the opposite of what happened in verse 5 of our text with the scoffers who overlooked deliberately what had happened in history with Noah and God's seeming delay of bringing judgment there. He says, Christians do not overlook like the scoffers did. The fact that Jesus is going to come back. And you know what the opposite of overlooking is? Remember. Remember. In fact, that whole council to remember goes throughout the book of 2 Peter. Remember, remember, remember. Go back to the truth of what the gospel has said about Christ. And what's that truth? Well, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Peter's quoting Psalm 90 here. And Psalm 90 was written by Moses, of all people, and it highlights the eternal nature of God versus our very short lives. Now, this is key whenever you're understanding the second coming of Christ. God is eternal. That means he is above time. He is not bound by time because he created time. And therefore, because he created time itself, God's sense of time is not like our sense of time. In fact, it would be fair to say that God is not on our timetable. Now, we get a taste of this from the proverbial family vacation. Hey, we're winding up summer. Most of you have gone on some kind of family vacation. And if you've ever been in a car for a long period of time with little kids in the car, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you pack up the car. Dad's got it all strategically packed. And then you pack the kids in the back seat or way back wherever they're sitting in the car or minivan. And then you take off. And you're going a long way, maybe 
describing what does the typical little kid ask? Are we there yet? There you go. And he'll say, now, Susie, Bobby, uh, we got a long way to go. Just hang in there. Uh, here, do this. Uh, scribble on this. Look at the video. Do that. Do this. Well, no sooner than another half hour, hour goes by, and they're asking it again. Are we there yet? And this kind of goes on at the night of the whole trip till your glaze is over. But here's the thing. In the same way God is driving the car, he is the sovereign who is the only driver of that car. And when we get tired of waiting when life is really hard, it is our first inclination like the little kid to say, God, are we there yet? Peter saying, when you're feeling that pull, remember the Lord. Remember that his timetable is not like our timetable. Because he answers to no one but himself. And this is an extremely important truth to apply to our waiting on God and walking with Christ in this life. And especially with regards to the second coming of Christ. God is God. We are not. We wait on him on his terms. Not the other way around. That brings us to the third argument of Peter's uh, explanation of why we should trust Jesus coming, is coming back one day. And the third argument comes from another important question of believers. It goes like this. Okay, if God is on his own timetable, why, pray tell, is he taking so long? Or to get right down to it, this is what sometimes we're all thinking is, it doesn't seem like he's paying attention to things. What about me? And I want to answer, in, uh, uh, Peter answers this rather in verse 9 of our text when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So let's take this verse in really two parts, if you will. First, Peter is saying that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise that he's made in Scripture, that he made in history itself, that he's going to come back. But what's happening here is God is being patient. This is a common misconception of believers. We think God is late when in point of fact God is always on time in his sovereign plan. In reality, God is never late. He's being patient. Working out his plan in your life, in my life, in millions and billions of other lives, even the flow of history itself, he's working out his plan. When you think God is not coming through for you and is not doing it on the right timetable that you had in mind, remember, do not overlook. Remember that what feels like lateness to you is actually God's patience towards you and even towards our world. In fact, Exodus 34 reminds us this very truth when it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, get this, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, even to the forgiveness 
hard, or when things don't seem to be going your way, the way expected, do not turn to demanding that God work and act on your timetable. Pause and think, God is being patient with me right now. He's being patient with us in this world. He is expressing his unique character unlike any God there is. Do you need quickness to believe that God has actually got a timetable that makes sense? Well, think about the promises of Scripture themselves. Let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve, that creation. All the way back to Adam and Eve when they fell. When they fell, God judged them in the garden with a temporal judgment, but he also promised that a champion would come. It's a picture of Christ, really, who would ultimately come and save them by destroying Satan and his kingdom. That was tens of thousands of years ago that he made that promise. What about with Abraham 4,000 years ago? And he would promise a Savior who would take on his penalty when he would break the covenant there in Genesis 15. And then what happens with this promise of a coming seed? Nothing. For a long time. Think of Moses and the Israelites who were promised a great prophet savior who would come. And nothing came for 1,500 years. Even David was promised a kingly heir who would be on the throne for eternity in his name. Nothing. Terms of eternity happened for a thousand years. All of these waited a long time for Christ to come. Why? Was God late? Was he neglectful? Kind of like the father, the absent father, the deadbeat dad who just forgets. Did he have too much to do? He was just preoccupied. Galatians 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. In the fullness of time, meaning right on time, Jesus came in history. Folks, we live in an instant culture where we get so many things immediately. I mean, that text messages. It's okay to text people. I'm a great way to communicate. But sometimes we text and we're like, it's like a ping. We want an immediate ping back. And in some cases, we don't get one for a few minutes, maybe a couple hours, maybe even a day. We get a little disturbed, don't we? Well, Jesus had given us promises, and when we pray for him to come back, we want him to come back, we're pinging him, but there's a little silence going on. When that silence is going on, God's patience is involved. Not his absence. And you know what the ironic thing is, is when God works in his patience and doesn't give us what we want immediately, you know what he's calling us to? He's calling us to repent of our impatience. Repent of others. What he's doing is he's revealing to us that there's a bigger story here at stake in this you and me and what's going on in our lives. There's something grander than us going into the story of history itself that we as God's people are a part of, but we are not the center of it. Christ is. That's the story that's going on. Like 
a good book or an epic movie series like Lord of the Rings, you and I won't appreciate the great end to the story without understanding the unfolding story as it comes about. So when you watch Lord of the Rings, do you skip all the videos and jump to the very end of uh, Return of the King? No. You watch the whole thing. The unfolding of the story makes sense of the end. God isn't jumping to the end too fast. He has a purpose in his unfolding story and his patience for us. What's his purpose? Well, let's look at nine, uh, verse 9 above. And B, it says this, the Lord is not so slow as promises, some count slowness, uh, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's the purpose of God's patience in the unfolding story of history itself till Jesus comes back? He wants people to repent, not perish. Ezekiel 18 talks about this at length when it says this profound thing that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In other words, God takes pleasure in saving people and rescuing people. Three times in Ezekiel, it says this. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then at the end of each time it says that, it says, God calls sinners to turn from their way and live. Turn is repentance language. And the image of repentance is this. You're walking in one direction away from God going your own way, you follow the evil one, and your habits and your ways. Real repentance is turning the other way, following Christ, and walking the narrow road to the celestial city, as Bunyan said, towards heaven itself. Following Jesus through many dangers, toils, and snares. That's what repentance is. The turning of the heart, the turning of the way we do things in life in every aspect. question comes out of this, who is supposed to repent? Well, I say there are at least two candidates for this. The first would be this, it'd be the non-Christian who doesn't know Christ. In fact, you are no Christian why God is waiting and being patient about Jesus coming back is because we are called to do mission. We are called to share the gospel and to get into our unbelieving friends and family lives and bring them the gospel so that they might know Christ and worship him. They might turn and follow the Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. This verse is a call to missions. Who are you reaching out to? Who are you sharing the gospel with in your life that's not a Christian already? And if you can't think of anybody in your life who isn't a Christian, you are living in the Christian ghetto. Get out of the ghetto. Go hang out with non-Christians who don't know Christ. Spend time with them. Don't take on their ways. But certainly spend time with them because that is our call, to go and make disciples where people are lost. But there is a second candidate for repentance. It's not what we walk towards. Did you notice at the end of verse 9, or the middle of verse 9, he says, God is patient toward you, you equals Christian. Wait a minute. Christian means repent. I thought we already said, don't we? Now you understand. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
you're born in the life of hell. Every day. You're repenting of sin on a regular basis. It's not just when you walk down the aisle. It is following Jesus and discovering new things in your life that you need to repent of and embrace Christ to lead you to new life and forgiveness. Here's my question. Here's a question we ask our officer candidates every year when we sit down with them to examine. Are you ready for this? It goes like this. What sin are you repenting of now? Not five years ago. Not ten years ago. Not twenty years ago when you walked down the aisle. No, no. Right now.
us to consider the suddenness of Christ's return and how we are to live in light of that. Again, there's going to be more of that next week. But here's the big thing. What he's talking about in verse 10 is the day Jesus comes back, everything will be judged. Everything. So the history itself will be judged once and for all. There's even this language of uh, that the works that are done on it, the earth that is, will be exposed. In other words, the things we do in this world, every human being has ever done, will be brought into the light. And Christ will expose it as the final judge. Now, this is a pretty extraordinary moment because what Peter is saying about the final judgment of Christ when he comes back is that all of our stories will be put up like on an IMAX screen, everything. And we'll have to answer for it before God and perhaps before all of men. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. This is the place where typically the skeptic will say, there you go again. <laughs> you Christians and your talk of final judgment, hellfire brimstone, you keep bringing it up again and again. You got a pretty good story in Jesus, but you keep bringing up this whole thing about final judgment. When are you guys going to get over it? And why do they keep talking about judgment? My response would be this. You don't lighten up when you're wrong, do you? Think about it like this. Have you ever been wronged in life? And you couldn't do anything about it. Have you ever been wrong in life? And not only could you couldn't do anything about it, no one in the world could do anything about it. And the person who did you wrong not only got away with it, but in some cases prospered at your expense. Don't you want justice? Don't you want things to be set right? Well, I can tell you the answer to that for everybody here, whether you're a Christian or not. The answer is yes. Of course you want justice things to be set right. You don't want people to get away with things scot-free, do you? Well, here's the question. Who's going to set it right? If you say nobody, as if there is no God, we don't need to worry about any Jesus stuff, then you know what the end of that is? Despair. Because nothing can stop evil. You might as well eat The interesting thing about that is nobody really believes that, do they? I mean, not even Hollywood. Every story in Hollywood actually has a happy ending where the good guys ultimately win. That's even inherent in all of us, this sense that we want the good guys to win. Well, I would suggest there is a God, a good God, who is going to bring history to a close, to a win. For him and for his glory. And if you have a God who will bring everything to an end and bring justice to the world, then you have hope. Then you can look forward with hope. That's what Christianity says. We can look forward with hope, not with despair. Now let me add a little twist to this. Let's say you've wronged somebody. 
of body and even prospered at their expense. You've hurt someone and been able to enjoy the benefits of walking all over them. Here's my question to you. What are you going to do if Jesus is for real coming back as a judge with how you perform and done injustice with other people? I would freely admit to you that I have actually done injustice with people myself. Family, friends, the whole nine yards. Other people. What will we do with our guilt? This is where Christianity comes in. And is a call to remember not just that Jesus is coming back, but what Jesus has done in history by dying on the cross for my sin and yours. You see, the coming of Christ the second time is tied to the first coming of the King as a Lord and Savior to conquer our hearts. When he came to take away from us the terrible things we may have done, the worst that we've done, if we're afraid to tell somebody, Jesus knows it, and he died for us. For the contempt that we carry in our hearts sometimes for those who do evil, when we have this log in our eye that we have our, done our own against us, Jesus died for that. Don't you see? Christ took justice of our, the justice we deserve on himself at the cross. And we Christians believe that he eradicated the curse so that when he comes back, he will say, Come into my kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. All we must do is trust in that Christ alone for our salvation. And I say this to those who, who are wondering what Christianity is about. You can know Christ personally, really. That big, giant Savior who died for you so that, in fact, if Jesus is coming back one day, he can say, I know you. Come on in. You're family. You belong here at home in heaven. Jesus died and was resurrected for our sins. And the gospel today calls us to do one simple thing. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who came in history and changed everything with his life and death and resurrection. Remember the Lord who is coming once again. Whenever you feel that despair, whenever you wonder, why am I waiting? Where is God in this? Remember the Lord who is loving you, beloved. Remember the Lord who loved me and gave his life for you. Sometimes waiting on God is hard to do, especially when you don't know what's going to happen. But if you remember the Lord, well, you can actually have real hope. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you to speak to us about the hope that is in the gospel of Jesus returning one day. And as we explore this magnificent doctrine, we ask you to help us overcome our doubts and fears, believing, Lord Jesus, that your timetable is not ours, believing that you're being patient with us, that we may grow. And that those who don't know you might actually taste your life in this life through the gospel. And we pray to you, Lord, that though you will come one day, it will be so.
sudden, unexpected, you are coming back. It's going to happen. And we can bank our life on the blessed hope of the return of our King.